Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta. And today we're pleased to have with us a uh, special guest, uh, Ati Riazi, who is the uh, Chief Information Technology Officer of the United Nations. Now, she was appointed by Secretary, Gen- Secretary General Ban Ki-moon uh, as the Assistant Secretary General uh, and, and new Chief information technology officer she's got a uh, a long and and accomplished career uh she works as a financial philanthropist um she's was previously a global cio at, at ogilvy and mather for over nine years she is uh she has experience working with large organizations both in the in the private sector and the public sector uh she was previously vice president and cio of technology for the for the mta uh which is new york city transit uh and she also serves as executive director of cios without borders so uh we're really looking forward to our conversation ati thanks so much for for joining us Thank you so much, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here with you and um, with your audience. Oh, awesome. So we'd love to get a, a, a bit of perspective on your background. And, and if you could talk about what has shaped your view of how you know, technology plays a role in, in driving changes. Um, well, you know, I, perhaps I can start with a, with a story of when I was um, six years old and my young brother received the watch that I always wanted. And I figured, you know, if I can take this watch and, and put it in the dirt and water it, perhaps I will get a watch too. Um, well, I did that and he was distraught because he couldn't find his watch. <laughs> and I kept watering this thing and the days passed and weeks passed and nothing came out of it. And I felt awfully guilty about um, wearing his watch and uh, having it rusted. So finally, I actually uh, told him and uh, what happened and that I did not get a watch tree. Um, and, um, and I was watching this for a long time. But I think what, what I'm trying to say is that you think about, um, as a child, how we think about... Um, changes and evolutions and human evolution and um, the evolution of culture and civilizations and that creativity and that curiosity of a child and wanting to understand the world around it. And, and that watch kind of sparked my perspective as how are things working and, um, and why is it that you don't, you don't create a watch through watering it? And, and I think that um, my, my life was shaped when I was five years old. I was really curious and interested in technology and how things work and how things complement the life that we have for both kind of productive ways and perhaps not so productive ways. Uh, but <clears throat> putting that story aside, I think um, I'm, I'm intrigued by evolution. And I think that... Um, Human evolution, you think about humans, we started using tools and 
our purpose of using tools is really to harness and control energy in the beginning. Um, either it's through muscle energy or through usage of domestic animals or in agriculture, later in natural resources. And now you see how there's advancements of technology and energy. And, and I come from a culture where I don't, I remember when we didn't have running water and we didn't have electricity where I grew up. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a television. And through kind of my life, I witnessed the advancements of technology in that space and how life drastically changed and how humans started to use more advanced tools. Um, and I think that's really what fascinates me. It's about evolution of, of us as homo sapiens uh, to the next phase of what I call us the connected sapiens. Um, sapiens that have gone from being individuals to being connected and being and evolving through the use of technology. Now, I think that's a that's a great point and one that I think is is very consistent with some you know the view that as as humans had evolved from our from our predecessors to develop civilization with you know with with towns and cities and and organizations essentially that that technology does in many respects reflect the uh, the next stage of our of of, of our own evolution of humanity i think that's uh you kind of encapsulated it beautifully i um i'd, I'd like to pull a little bit uh pull the pull the story a little bit forward to to uh, where you are today and uh you know working with with the un which is which is a unique and and uh super national organization as you know as as someone who's worked in technology uh you know during your career i mean can you provide a bit of color about what the what the role of a of of, of a cio is you know what 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 are the what are the challenges and the opportunities that 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 leadership role can uh, can bring to the table and and how how you've seen it evolve over the last several years? Um, thank you so much for that question, Ed. Um, I think CIOs are in an in an incredibly transformative position, and they are in a very difficult position. <clears throat> Because what we have right now is we have this kind of IT paradox where we have moved from using technology as a tool, hardware, software, service, and looking at technology as a tool to, um, to looking at technology and, and understanding the experience and the impact of technology on human life, on society, um, on, on finance, on income, on energy, so I, I, so we we have to have, and we as CIOs have this tremendous sophistication about innovation. Not only CIOs, I would say technologists, scientists, innovators. We have this incredible sophistication, but when it comes to understanding about its impact on the environment, on our cultures, on human life, on the future, we have lesser understanding of the implications. And there are broad implications. So the CIOs are are trying to grapple with that issue. And I don't think it's only the CIOs. Perhaps we are, as, as humanity, trying to understand that because um, we are benefiting from the, the positive impact 
and and uh, productivity gains, of course. Not all people are benefiting, but a segment of the society is benefiting. Uh, but we are also kind of impacted by by the negative side. You know, you think about the 20th century. Uh, you know, the, the the biggest innovation of 20th century was uh, was the internet, and um, it's really changed the way humans react and act and uh, live and work and um, and connect with each other. Um, but we could never have envisioned the creation of the dark web where we've seen a major crime shifting drug trafficking, money laundering, human trafficking, um, moving to the dark web. So, so I think as CIOs, we, we have this responsibility to think about innovation in a different way. Uh, technology is changing our life, it's changing the society, and we really have to understand, have dialogue and advocate for um, for responsible innovation to make sure that the change we are bringing about to the societies and to governments and, and uh, to our lives is a change which is a positive change. Um, and I think that's where the CIOs are. Um, and this paradox is something we have, to, we have to resolve that technology is much bigger than a tool. So we started, as I started, my, uh, talking to you about how humans you know, started looking at tools to um, to evolve, but we have reached the point that the tool is a bit smarter than us, yeah. and the tool has become its own species. It's gathered its own life, and it's not a tool that we can harness. It's a tool that may harness us, and I mm. think those are philosophical conversations we need to have. Uh, no, no question. In fact, there's. Uh, I mean, I know as as we come into possession or or begin to develop these increasingly powerful uh, the capabilities, such as uh, you know, obviously, obviously, nuclear, you know, nuclear power and and nuclear weapons and biotechnology, as well as you know, artificial you know, artificial intelligence. Right? We have to we do have to think about uh, principles that are going to. Uh, that are, that will guide how we you know how we develop technologies and I guess looking forward we certainly want to make sure that we don't uh, we don't un- unleash a, uh, uh, a negative force un- unanticipated negative forces but um, but but that's one of the the goals or, or, or one of the missions that uniquely that that a, a UN is is capable of of, of addressing. Um, you know, I'd love to get a little perspective of, of, you know, from from your experience. I mean, you've you've worked in the private sector, and now uh, you, you've been working at the UN you know, for for several years. Could you could you talk a bit about how uh, you know how your 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 work with with the UN is uh, you know re- really represents a contrast from uh, working with a with you know, the, working in the private sector or or more more or local organization and 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 how that does apply to to some of these big picture challenges like the sustainable de- development goals. Thank you, Ed. So, you know, this, the sustainable development goals, um, uh, as you know, were endorsed by all countries about three years ago. Seventeen goals, uh, very critical to, I would say, sustaining life and and uh, healthy environment for all of us um, and it is uh, the, the responsibility of not only the member states 
and the UN, but also the the private sector to ensure that we can achieve these goals. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm hoping that we do bridge this gap between governments and the private sector because the last goal on the SDGs is about partnership. And how do we come together to see that there is value in addressing big social issues? So coming from the private sector where the focus was improve productivity, improve margin, improve customer experience, improve products to the UN where our goal is improve human life, improve the environment, improve the oceans. Um, how do you merge the two? And I think this is really where I have come to in my career is what can I do to bring the two groups which are desperately need each other and have to work together uh, to bring bring value and ensure positive future um, for humanity. And I think that's actually where I see the um, synergies, tremendous amount of synergies. Um, if you look at um, world income, I think there's $30 trillion um, is really produced and held by the private sector, whereas $3 trillion is held and produced by governments. And, and, and when you think about addressing big social issues, the governments and NGOs and UN are held um, is, is responsible to addressing big social issues, where the private sector does invest sometimes in addressing these big social issues, but at a very minimum level. Um, and I think that we have to we we have to come together to own these social issues because uh, some of these issues, especially when we think about issues on the environment, are created by the private sector, and the private sector has benefited from it. Um, and without having a good um, environmental plan or without having a circular economy, uh, we are not going to be mitigating some of the issues that have been created. So I think that coming from both sectors, um, I, have, I have the compassion and, and understanding of what each sector is confronted with. Mm -hmm. And I try to bring the two together to understand each other's vision and perspective and really we seek partnership on the sustainable development goals from the private sector because without that we will not be able to achieve those goals right you uh you just re referenced circular economies uh, that's a that's a really intriguing concept could you pr provide the uh, a little color around the, what the dynamics of a circular economy is, and uh, and and how you know, how do you how do you foster the growth of a circular economy? Um, well, you know, when we think about cities, you know, what what are cities about? Cities are about about water, they're about energy, they're about food, they're about waste, and and mobility and home in the middle, right? That's what the cities are about. And the cities contribute to about 75% of CO2 creation. And they consume roughly about 75%, 80% of energy. So if you think about having a circular economy about just one, one area like energy and waste, how do we convert waste to energy? How do we convert plastic back into energy? Um, I think we can begin to address some of these big issues. The fact is, oceans are filling up with plastic. The rivers are filling up with medical waste. And the tech sector um, is 
continuously promoting the purchase of electronics, and many of them with lead and mercury, which are polluting the water and the ground and, and the earth. And we don't have any plans of getting rid of the waste. Governments are crippled by the amount of waste. Um, and the tech sector really, you know, hasn't, hasn't come up with a plan. So, um, so the, to me, the circular economy actually does have uh, value in terms of uh, not only supporting the environmental goals of cleaning up the waters and the oceans and the earth, but also um, creating new industry and creating new business. And the producers of products um, have a responsibility in um, implementing circular economy in market to be able to put the waste back in. So, you know, I was I was in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago, and um, I was in Saigon, and I was just looking at how they were just simple things. They've been cutting up tires to make flip flops. So you think about it, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to be innovative and it has to help local economy. And I think we have so many opportunities to create industry in local economies to um, to have that kind of circular economy where we take waste and put it back, uh, convert it to energy or, um, or take it out of the environment and reproduce it as, as different products. And I advocate and I ask the private sector to come to the uh, table and have conversation about circular economy because I find it irresponsible that, and, I, and, and the message is really to all industries, mm -hmm. but I find it irresponsible that we produce tremendous amount of waste and, and we profit from it, but we do, not, we do not believe we have the responsibility to take that waste out. That, absolutely, and it, it's. I think you, you hit on a really key point there, which is that you know a lot of these these materials are, you know, they're generated by the private sector. They they are enjoyed by the public at large, but ultimately the the cleanup falls to you know the public sector or non governmental organizations. Or there's you know, when you talk about uh, the 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 issue with pollution in the oceans, right? There's not any. Uh, there really isn't anybody in charge of this. Are you? Um, are are there some ways that technology can be applied uh, to really to advance partnerships between uh, between you know the private sector, government, and uh, and NGOs uh, or organizations like the UN, you know, to, to, to really effectively, you know, address, you know, first of all, you don't want to, you don't want to be polluting the environment and, 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 and spoiling the, really the common, uh, you know, the common resources that, that we all enjoy, but it, are there, are there ways that technology can play a role in, in, in finding solutions? Um, I, I think it can, you know, I, I do believe in the tremendous positive impact of technology and innovation. I think we can find ways to mitigate as technology aggravates, it also mitigates. But we have to have the willingness. And that willingness comes, um, comes from the private sector. And as long as the private sector is driven by focus on profit and, and, and pure profit without responsibility, 
I don't know whether we're going to get there. A lot of innovations we see are startups. They are uh, grassroots innovations around these. They come from individuals through people who care about these issues. They're not scalable. And I think what we have and we try to do is give visibility to them and try to connect them with uh, with, with partners in the private sector to make it more scalable. Um, I think I think it will happen again through grassroots and through the people themselves because as long as they, they, they and, and 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 let me just take that um, just, just you know share with you my experience in Seattle. I was in Seattle talking to some of our partners in the private sector, and there's a great deal of enthusiasm, compassion about these issues, and and I think that um, they are starting to see that there is value in resolving social environmental issues. And and they're starting to figure out how can they do that while they also keep their uh, stockholders happy around profit and growth. Um, and the fact is that if the world is at war, and if you have 805 million people hungry, and if you have a billion five people who don't have access to the internet or, or a cell phone or a bank account, you don't have a society that is conducive to buying products that you're selling. So without addressing the big social issues of food disease, healthcare, unrest, pollution, without addressing that, we really cannot see a lot of growth. And that's where I think our conversations with the private sector, and I think we see some of the companies starting to think about how do I get engaged and how do I resolve that? We desperately need their innovation and creativity to begin to think about these issues because it is a circular economy, it's a circular world, which means whatever impacts the pollution and the plastic in the ocean doesn't only impact the ocean around Hawaii, right? It impacts all of us. The plastic in shrimp impacts all of us. This is impacting all of us. and. That responsibility is something that we have to rise up to the challenge of. No doubt, and and I think you've you've alluded to uh, to something that I you know I'm certainly seeing much more of a focus in uh, you know at least among the the millennial generation on on doing doing well by doing good. I mean a lot of uh, a lot of interest in in you know impactful. Uh, projects impactful technologies uh a a lot and and a lot of it does have to be driven by the uh by the private sector right i mean if if you you've had the you know the the one 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 model that uh the salesforce had uh has, has really advocated for in the in silicon valley where you have one percent of profits uh one percent of of equity and one percent of employee time that gets allocated to uh to to impact you know projects for impact uh and i was just the early, actually just earlier this week i was at a i was at an event at at the un uh focused on blockchain for impact and it was uh it was incredibly in, encouraging to see uh you know, the the growing number of startups uh and innovators now you know that are that are that are really uh, dedicated to to 
really change, solving some of the big, big using technology as a way to to solve some of the big pro- problems. And you know, the the UN has been you know has has been incredibly supportive of, of you know many of these efforts, but it's. But it's not easy, right? It's it's when you deal with multi supranational organizations and 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 different countries and the dynamics that are uh, that are going on, maybe politically or, or economically. Uh, this it's a it's it's quite a, a multi dimensional uh, challenge. Um, now, you've, as as you know, as you've worked with uh, you know worked you know through the UN on on. Um, a number of these challenges are are, you, are there are there any you know common lessons that that you've you've learned from successes or or uh, any uh, any examples that stick out to you of of successful uh, successful impact projects that that have um, or that are or or where you feel a lot of a lot of promise with the UN and and uh, you know and say state and local governments. Um, um, well, you know, there's, there's so many, so many different initiatives that, um, we, um, we are seeing kind of blossom, uh, either through the governments and, or through, uh, the private sector around the sustainable development goals to address the targets of sustainable develop, development goals. Many are innovative. Many can, if, if scalable, can address big issues. Um, we are uh, we're talking to the private sector around building this um, this platform for applications for social good, which people can applications analytics data that people can access, download, and use. Uh, because you have the app store, but I think it's a different app store. It's a bad app store that a farmer can download for a particular need that that farmer may have or data that that farmer may need for uh, having a better crop or better access to where the water is. So I think that would be, that has, to me, tremendous value going forward. Um, I do think there is a lot of interesting, as you mentioned, initiatives around identity and blockchain. Um, because today we have about over a billion um, women, at least, that don't have a bank account. We have over a billion people that don't have identity. Um, we have 65 million refugees that leave everything at home and they leave and they can never prove their identity or their um, right to an asset that they left behind. Um, and when we think about um, the impact of blockchain giving people an identity, um, it makes a huge difference because when you don't have an identity, um, you could, I mean, you could be tried as, as an adult when you're a child and you can't prove your age. You could be, um, you look at um, child marriage. Um, you look at uh, human trafficking with children that you don't count and you don't know exist in your country or trafficked, especially a lot of girls. Um, so those are some of the big issues that I think we can address with um with uh, through blockchain and through some of these initiatives that are taking place around identity for everybody. Um, another interesting part of it is, you know, we are shifting. There's another shift taking place with blockchain. Um, there are lots of, you know, internet brought great prosperity to some, but many, many 
actually, and especially a lot in middle class, have actually dropped uh, to poverty levels. Um, and what we've seen is we have seen a further consolidation of wealth in, in the top few percent um, and a reduction of wealth from everybody else. So, uh, yes, technology is about prosperity, and we think it would bring further prosperity, but we have to resolve this issue of um, lack of proper income distribution. And it's important when we think about areas of artificial intelligence, when through AI you could um, impact many jobs in the agriculture, uh, in, in the industrial system, even in professional area, you could impact. And, and we have to have a different financial model um, to make sure that we take care of, by 2025, I think, 7.5 billion people. So when we think about blockchain and the shift it will do in the banking system and where people can have peer-to-peer -peer transaction, financial transaction, and um, what we will see is a little bit of wealth that is repaying to the banks for fees is going to come back to the individuals because now we're moving to a peer-to-peer -peer model. So if you think about you know, uh, a maid in New York City who makes $500 a week sends, uh, sends uh, uh, money to their family, let's say, in Philippines, they have to pay 20, 25% to Western Union as a fee. So here is $500, $100 already goes. But if you think about peer-to-peer -peer transactions, you have a transaction where you don't have to pay the fee. You have a transaction that's secure. You have a transaction where your identity doesn't get stolen. Um, and you have a transaction where it begins to shift uh, wealth from the, the center back to the middle. So I think something like that uh, is very interesting. And I think it has huge impact in the way we further flatten industries uh, it would impact financial industry, but it would impact even businesses like Uber, where you can now get someone to drive you, which would be a peer-to-peer -peer transaction versus going through a company that would charge a fee and at the end, the income is not equally distributed among the, the workers. So I just think these are, these are very interesting, at least to me. Um, and of course, they pose their own ethical and and uh, sociological and economical issues as we further um, deploy them in the society. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, I think the, I mean, the, the concern over this really concentration of wealth or concentration of power, I think, has become quite apparent in the, you know, in the Internet segment, right, where you have... Uh, you know, companies like Google and Facebook and uh, Amazon that become so dominant, and 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 in many respects they become so so decentralized. They, they become so centralized that their that their power results from the amounts of data that they're able to to, to harvest, and then and then really use that to uh, to broaden their their reach and 
really competitive advantages. I think uh, you know, when we when we look back at uh, the you know, the early early days of the 20th century, late 19th century, where you had the you know the tr- the, the the trusts and and the trust busters and and really the emergence of antitrust. And, uh, it seems that we had so much hope around the you know the that the internet was going to create all of these democratic opportunities with with long tail businesses and what's happened is that you've you've had this in many respects it has it's it's even magnified a lot of the disparities um and and it and blockchain and decentralized ledger technologies appear to be a real uh at least a way to kind of get around you know government uh the the challenges of government some government corruption and uh the the really the unfair or or perceived as unfair but certainly disproportionate or the disproportionate allocation of of, of wealth and income um, and now as you look at, at at there but there's some problems again that that fall outside of the of, of, of pure economics and and you'd made some uh, you you'd alluded to um, for instance uh, Human trafficking and, and and refugees and uh, and and even availability of, of, of water. You know what? You know what are the uh, the projects or, or or uses of technology that make you most optimistic that uh, that there might be ways to mitigate some of these these uh, these these enormous uh, these enormous challenges. You know, as as they say, our understanding is. Um I um, our, our understanding is pessimistic, but our willingness is optimistic. I think when you look at the shift of crime to the dark web, um, it is it is crippling governments, and um, and you know we we see maybe one percent of the one percent of these people getting caught, really. So uh, the, the the human trafficking is a thirty-two billion dollar business. Most of the commerce has shifted to the dark web. We have 20 million modern-day slaves, which are 80% women and 50% children. And when you think about mining, I'm sorry, talking about trafficking, a lot of other issues that stem from it are uh, illegal deforestation, illegal mining, um, the, the sex trafficking, sexually exploited children. So you have this huge problem, right? And if you think about drug trafficking, that's a $4 trillion business. Much of it shifted to the dark web. Um, and with governments not having the capabilities, the skill set, the know-how, the products, the monitor track stops. And that's just kind of a, a small view of it. The, the third element of this is cyber wars, because the industrial systems of most countries are so weak and now they're connected to the Internet. You can easily from anywhere bring somebody's electric grid down and just have the country go dark which impacts human life, and, and you would never know who it is. So when we think about, um, uh, we, we think in a physical world. You know, technology it has been exponential, has exponential growth, but our thinking is not exponential. We still look at these things and we say, let's solve it in a way that we know how to solve problems in a, in a physical world. We still think governments with borders actually can influence some of these issues. You know, the rule of law, civil society, uh, enforcement of policies really mean nothing in a dark web. They mean nothing. Nobody cares that we have, uh, we have <clears throat> laws against trafficking. 
Um, so what, then what is the answer? Because the, the private sector doesn't care. It doesn't bring them profit. Uh, the, the criminals, which are a small percentage of the population, are going crazy. Um, and the governments, NGOs, and the UN are looking at this and this huge change, which is really ungoverned. Um, and, um, and I think the only way we can address it is through technology itself. And it's through, through crowdsourcing almost. You mm. know, we have an initiative we call the Digital Blue Helmets. And the Digital Blue Helmets are, are cyber security people. And they're experts in cyber and cyber crime and cyber um, um, uh, cyber protection, cyber security monitoring, and they can they're starting to look at tools and products that can track trafficking of people in a dark web or trafficking or uh, cryptocurrency and money laundering. And I think that's really where I it makes me hopeful that I see there are technologies coming up to protect uh, our identity, to protect our children, uh, to protect and to put some sort of kind of virtual governance in illegal activity. And same goes with terrorism and cyber terrorism. Um, so I think the, to me, that's really where I have seen some, some movement and and the only way we can really respond to that is through globally, through everybody who wants to do something positive and do something good to begin to address these big issues in a dark web because no one company, no one government, and um, no one NGO can address these issues. These are just beyond anybody's grasp at this point. Yeah, I was, I was going to say it would seem that, that having a almost an open source approach to, uh, to sharing information or providing the education and training that would be needed uh, would, be, it would be so, so useful. Or, or, you know, how, 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 do, how do you see the um, potential, you know, an optimal or, or, or beneficial uh, organizations or structures emerging to, you know, to really accomplish this? Because what you're talking about is really it's a, uh, it's it, this is these are uh, glo- global solutions to global problems that uh, that in in many respects don't don't benefit from having the accountability of of say a a single sponsor company or or or, or organization. But of course, if you if you I, I would think if you could get the right alignment of of incentives or um, or at least some some resources to you know, to help empower people that that um, that that might provide a, a a roadmap. Any 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 thoughts about about how to how to approach this? I think the only incentive we can provide is to preserving the good of humanity. Um, the the fact is that um, we, you know, to me it's a virtual neighborhood watch. But today in a physical world, if you cross the street, you have a red light. You look right. You look you look left. If you're hit by a car, there is a way of of catching the person who hit you. There is a way. Of, there's a court system. There's judicial system. In, in a dark web, if you are, your identity is stolen, your child is stolen, um, your uh, drugs are sold, there is no red light. And there is 
no kind of criminal judicial system to protect you. So as human beings, we are completely unprotected. And and I think that we have to almost, to me, it's, as I said, virtual neighborhood watch. We have to all rise up to the responsibility. And we have to come up with innovative ideas to protect um, protect uh, our families and our societies and our, 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 the good of the society. And I think that's the only way. You mentioned open source. I say open society and engagement of everyone. Um, so that's why we call it Digital Blue Helmet. We are this virtual um, innovators and virtual people. We don't have to be an innovator to participate, to fight back. Because technology at this point to me is, is, is an organism. It's this organism that we've created, the species we've created, but we can no longer control. And it's going through those teenage years. <laughs> and and we are sitting here trying to put governance that doesn't work and 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 try to figure out you know how do we how do we kind of mold this thing and this thing is beyond our grasp the right. only way it could be governed is through self governance and it's through self learning and it's through creating its own white blood cells and those white blood cells that would fight the viruses. And if we begin to think not like a carbon creature, as we are, but as a silicon creature that we have developed, perhaps we can begin to mitigate, and we can begin to make it be formed and shaped where it creates a lot more good. Because it does create a lot more good. I mean, technology is incredible. The advancement of technology have really impacted so many areas, education, healthcare, communications, lots of social democratic movements been because of the openness to knowledge and information. But we do have to mitigate this kind of virus that's in there, the dark web. And I don't mean the mm -hmm. deep web, the mm -hmm. dark web. And we have to kind of excite these white blood cells to get this tumor out and address it. And we can't sit back and say the government is going to pass the laws or the private sector is going to do something. They're not going to do something. It's not going to get done. It is our responsibility to figure it out. Oh, that's that's absolutely on point, and I I, I think you're you've you've really articulated the you know the the challenge ahead. It's in in a sense it, we we all need to uh, we all need to heed the call, call to action, and and uh, I think if, if what the work that you're doing at the at the UN and and a lot of the uh, you know so certainly it's it's incredibly encouraging um, a lot of the. Uh, the innovation that's happening at, at, at the edges and and uh, globally now, uh, I hope we can uh, we can harness it all for good. So, um, listen, this has been an, an amazing conversation. Um, I always like to ask, um, you know, our guests if you have a have a good book or resource that you that you like to share and recommend. Um, is do you, do you have anything that you know, for for uh, for for your friends or colleagues that you that you like to you like to recommend? Um, well, I've been I've been reading. I was at MIT a couple of weeks ago, and I I I bought this book called Social Physics, and it intrigued me because I I've always loved physics, 
And, and I've always tried to understand whether the laws of physics work in society. And I think what, what this book, it's written by Alex Pentland, and he talks about this kind of the social networks and how we as humanity are getting smarter because we are connected. The IQ of, uh, of a group versus in the IQ of an individual. Hmm. And, and it is something that, that's really kind of caught me as I was reading this book is about um, how, you know, a long time ago humans used to sit around the fire and they would share ideas and they would share with someone, they would come to an agreement. And then in 1700, the philosophers came and talked about individual rationality, that individuals can be rational. Um, and then later, of course, we learned that rationality was based on your social perspective and social context and could have prejudice and uh, could have perspectives that would go against rationality. And then we had the age of the Internet, which connected us back in to this kind of space, and I call it the Promethean fire, and he calls it the Promethean fire, actually. Alex does. And it's about... The, the fire that, that, that we sit around, and it allows us to become more compassionate, more understanding species. Uh, it takes us from what I said earlier, homo sapiens, to connected sapiens, hmm. and which has a much better understanding of the world, has better decision-making, has better rational thinking, and how do we harness value of that, and what do we become, what is the next? for humanity as we get connected more into this network. And as a network of, of species, how do we do good to improve life for everyone and the environment? And how do we uh, mitigate uh, issues as they come up? So I, I think the book is great about from giving you that perspective and also connecting kind of the laws of physics to the laws of society and how to integrate. Wow, that's a that's a fantastic recommendation. Uh, I think I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to put it in my shopping cart right away after this after this call. Uh, so, you know, wrapping things up again. This is uh, Ed McGuire, Insights Partner of Momenta, and our guest has been uh, Ati Riazi, who's the Chief Information Technology Officer of the UN. And and I just want to thank you again for you know for the time and the insights. It's been uh, illuminating. And inspiring, and uh, we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and um, thank you to um, all of uh, those that are listening to us. I, um, I always uh, appreciate um, the, the feedback and uh, the comments we receive at the UN and the partnership and the support we get at the UN from everyone out there, and um, and we do need the continued partnership um, to achieve all the goals that are before us. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any 
suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.